TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. episode 52. This episode is brought to you by the Saris Cycling Group. After listening to our struggle last week to read the promotion, uh, Saris has decided to do everyone a favor and make today's announcement much easier to pronounce and understand. So here it is. Sign up for the newsletter, win a bike fixation outdoor public bike pump. Complete with gauge, steel-braided air hose, and outdoor-rated stainless steel construction, the Outdoor Public Bike Pump is the best and only pump you'll ever need for your park, school, business, or bike room. Show your bike friendliness and sign up to win. Visit sarasparking.com slash bike nerds to get entered to win and learn more about the Bike Fixation Outdoor Public Bike Pump. Again, at sarasparking.com slash bike nerds. Boom! One take! You know... <laughs> Did you did you did you listen back to last week's episode? Yes. <laughs> what did you think really, about like the the edited version of this? I really appreciated it. You made me sound uh, eloquent, <laughs> which is not how I sounded when I recorded it. So thank you very much. Yeah, I mean it was it was so funny editing. I just <laughs> I just kept listening listening to you like read the sentence and like miss a word. It was it was kind of like it was kind of like watching somebody like trip and fall. Right? It was like. <laughs> There was like this moment where you would like do like a very super minor like little error in trying to pronounce the the words that were coming out, and that would lead to like this great, this, this greater yeah this greater error two seconds later, and then before <laughs> before we knew it, you know the sentence wasn't you weren't reading the sentence anymore. <laughs> it was no English. So it, it only took me forty five minutes to edit the opening, you know, two minutes of last week's episode. Well, I really appreciate your hard work. Um, no problem. That, that's what I'm here for. Uh, but I do, ha- you know, the good thing is I do have it all. It feels like this should be like a out uh, outtakes and bloopers reel um, that gets released at some point. I totally agree. <laughs> that that one would for sure make it in. Yeah. Please. I think I probably maybe take up a lot of the blooper reel <laughs> for me. It's just tough. I thought it would be funny also to do like a, like a electronic dance version of like you're laughing. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> yes. That was lots of opportunity. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why I thought about that, but I just, every time I, you know, sometimes there's, um, there's like little bits of sound that get cut out and yeah. some of it's like extra giggling that you and I do. It's like, that feels like that's We don't a need good, all that giggling. Yeah, it feels like that's a good, that's a good spot for us to like make our own theme song and uh, drop this giggling into it. Hey, I saw that um, Colorado and Tennessee switched, swapped places this week. Yeah, I know. It actually snowed last night. <laughs> How was that? It was beautiful. It was really lovely and didn't stick because it was like 70 degrees the day before. Yeah. Um, 
And you wouldn't be able to tell today because it's gorgeous out that it's snow. But it was really pretty. It was nice. Yeah. How much sledding? How much sledding? <laughs> sledding did you do? Oh, so much. Yeah, I got my cross country skis out. <laughs> I really tore it up. Yeah. Uh, you know, today it's like seventy and sunny and just beautiful. What? Yeah. I went. I actually got up uh, early this morning. You know, earlier than normal because. You know, today was just an or- a nor- normal early day for everybody yeah. in the country um, because of the daylight savings time time change. But I got even up earlier than I normally would have so that I could go get my my run done. But I but I realized that like when I woke up, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that like the sun won't be up anymore. <laughs> like, <when> I woke <laughs> up. So I actually slept in a little bit longer just to wait for the sun to creep up a little bit. But it it was it was so nice at like. 6 a.m. this morning that I just, you know, put on a t-shirt and some shorts and sort of, you know, bit my tongue through a little bit of cold first thing in the morning. But as soon as I got going and got warmed up, uh, it's go- it was gorgeous. And now, you know, now that it's full on afternoon, sun is bright, it's shiny. I was just laying on the couch, you know, with the windows open. Look at you, with like a little really blanket on top of me. Yeah, you know, just <laughs> just taking a little taking a little snooze on, on the on the couch on a Sunday afternoon. So you it know, all, it's it not going to like good. you know, it's not going to be like this the rest of March, though. Uh, it's right? not. Are you sure? <laughs> That's okay because I'm I'm heading out of town this week. I'm heading. Yeah, to, I'm, I feel head, like I'm, I'm gone. I'm heading to L.A. on Wednesday. So oh, fantastic. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know whatever whatever March wants to bring to Colorado, it can bring. I'm just going to go someplace else. <laughs> yeah. What's what are you gonna do in LA? Um, we're gonna be there for work. Doing, uh, we're, we're visiting each of the cities that are a part of the big jump, mm-hmm. um, just to meet the people on the ground and get a sense of what's happening on you know in the neighborhoods that we're gonna be working in. Doing some bike riding, meeting some city people, meeting some community people. You know, just kind of schmoozing, seeing what's going on, enjoying not snow weather. Yeah, absolutely. Eating ramen. Maybe, maybe a little ramen. What do you got going on this week? This week, I have no idea. <laughs> I actually don't know. Work stuff, bike share stuff, same old, same old. I think my bike challenge started yesterday, so biking more. I'm going to do Indigo Dine tomorrow at 5 and one Social Club, which is like a workshop place here in town. Wow. Do some crafting, which is not usually my style. I'm looking forward to that. What kind of crafting? Um, it's like, you're familiar with five and one social. They like call it, it's like the kindergarten for kids, but this is like, they take indigo dye. It sounds a lot like tie dye to me, okay. but like indigo dye and you can dye like different fabrics like silks or cottons. Uh-huh. Are you like making some curtains or, um, I don't know what I'm going to make yet, <laughs> but I guess you use like it's you use techniques borrowed from the Japanese tradition of shibori to create patterns on the fabric fabric using um, the indigo like plant. Wow! I'll report back. Yeah, let me know. You can do it on cotton, silk, wool, anything that's 100% plant or animal fibers. It actually looks really cool. And now I'm really excited. So I'm doing that this week. Good. Well, I'm glad for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Crafting, crafting, crafting. It's just, it's springtime, I guess. I guess, yeah, you just got to start just, doing This is it. what you do. Uh, pretty soon you'll have like buckets of like popsicle sticks and beads at your house. Oh, gosh. All, all crystals, more crystals. Different kinds of glue. 
crystals don't aren't like crafting, are they? I don't know. I feel like I could make like jewelry out of them. That's true. You could also. Um, I was thinking like multiple different kinds of glue, right? The, yep. A hot glue gun oh, feels like the next. I think that's purchase a must. in my in my future. <laughs> I think that's a must. You can't you can't be a serious crafter if you don't have the hot glue gun. Um, I could start making like things like I could make bike accessories. Yeah. Maybe we could just get our uh, listeners to s- to send you emails with their crafting supply must-have lists. Yeah, I would appreciate that. <laughs> Do you think we have a lot of crafters listening in? I don't know, but you know, I'm just imagining I'm going to come visit you this spring, and uh, your apartment is just going to have <laughs> boxes and boxes Welcome, of Kyle. like crafting supply. You'll be like ironing, like you know, like you like melting like this bead pattern that you made with so, an iron. There'll be stuff like hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> I'm like, I made you a necklace. <laughs> Here, welcome. It's just like sticks hanging from the <laughs> Edwin has like a new outfit every day that I've handmade. <laughs> that actually isn't a bad idea. A little bandana. Um, I really can't. I don't. I really need to look at my calendar. I don't know what else is going on this week. Last week was a total blur. We had like, I think I had eight fun development meetings around raising the rest of the capital for bike share. Wow. So I kind of feel like I'm still recovering yeah. from asking multiple people for six figures in a week. Well, I think it's okay if you take a week off. And and honestly, what you should do is listen to this week's episode because we have a great guest. Yes, the best. Kylie Walzak. And I'm not saying I'm not saying Kyle, I'm saying Kylie. I thought th- I thought there was going to be a lot of confusion on the phone call. You know, are you talking to Kyle? Are you talking to Kylie? Uh, it all worked out. So, listeners, never fear. But <laughs> Kylie is the lead program manager at the Living Streets Alliance in Tucson, Arizona. Yes, I we had a fantastic conversation. I personally really enjoyed it because I think Tucson and Memphis sounds like they have some similarities in terms of their city fabric and how the city was developed and what's happening now. So I really enjoyed the conversation and the work that Living Streets Alliance is doing. Yeah, you know, my my familiarity with um, LSA and Kylie actually goes back to my time when I was working in Memphis. We were, both of our cities, Memphis and Tucson, were participating in this national everyday bicycling challenge oh. where, where like once a month – uh, cities, was this like two years ago? Yeah. Cities were asked to sort of, you know, go out and count different kinds of things on corridors. And so mm-hmm. you know, one month would be, let's count how many people have beards on their corridor. I think that was like a November theme. Or how many people are wearing dresses while they're riding bikes. And I think Memphis and Tucson went back and forth month to month on who was winning. You know, one month yeah, we you're would right. do it. One month Tucson would, would win. And, you know. I think we both the cities at some point started started stacking the deck right and encouraging people to wear skirts and dresses and beards even if they wouldn't normally have been doing that and I began like talking trash to Tucson on no Twitter right <laughs> but it feels like a very Memphis thing right it was like a lot of like I was like using like the city's like official bicycle program account to, to like you know like to really like dig it into LSA and Tucson whenever we would win, and you know what what was interesting was like they never wrote back they never responded to any of like the trash talk it was just me basically Are you serious? it was a one that that was just a one way sort of battle yeah yeah 
And but here here's <laughs> at the end of at the end of the whole thing, uh Tucson actually edged Memphis out in the wind for the whole like year long competition. And so maybe people that trash talk really do win maybe, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. But so so Tucson just edged us out. They won like the whole kit and caboodle. And a couple of weeks later in the mail, I got this package and I didn't know like what it was or what it was from. And I opened it up and Kylie and the LSA team had sent me a condolences package in the mail. No. Yes. Dang. <laughs> with, like, with like a sympathy card <laughs> that they like, had written and a t-shirt for their local Ciclavia program. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Why but- didn't you bring that up on the podcast? Well, because it, it feels like a little bit of old news a little bit, but but I'm bringing it up now, right? Here it is on that's the podcast. That's great. A little nice uh, nugget of trivia. But yeah, I mean, and that's – and that, so a couple of weeks ago I'll, – I'll show you this tweet, but a couple of weeks ago when, once the big jump cities were announced and it was announced that both Tucson and Memphis were in the program, LSA wrote to the wrote to Memphis and said, hey, Bike Pet Memphis, do you think we could let bygones be bygones? And <laughs> since we're both in the big jump now, you know, so. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I'm so happy you shared that. Well, there it is. So Thank that was you, my, Tom. that was my prior experience of the LSA team. But I was really impressed by, you know, a lot of the work that, that Kylie is doing through LSA and the kinds of organization that they have going on in the community, you know, some of the real unique challenges that, that they deal with being sort of in Southern Arizona are different from some of the other communities that we've talked to so far. And mm-hmm. I thought the interview was really great. Absolutely. Well, let's let everybody else listen to it and hit it. Wow. You guys sound really well, really good, like high quality. And I'm worried about my sound actually. Don't worry about it. Does it sound okay to you? Yeah, it sounds great. You sound beautiful. Smart, beautiful. It sounds great. I'm actually sitting in a car. Is that weird? (laughs) No. (laughs) We've done many a podcast sitting in cars. (laughs) If I had to list the top 10 weirdest places I've podcasted, car would be low on the list. Okay, good. Yeah, our office is like cavernous and there's no doors and it's like a brick. It actually is an old brick. uh, like Firestone Auto Stations, <laughs> that, that would be weird. And there might be a train. You know, there's all whatever. There's all kinds of noises. That <laughs> happen. Sarah's office is kind of the same way, right? Sarah? Yeah, there used to be an old cotton factory, so I'm surrounded by brick and wood, and it's very open. Like I am not in a room. I'm in okay. like a pretend room. Do you have a bunch of like coworkers near you? I Elbows. do. Yeah, that's hard. Okay. Yeah. An open concept, I think they're calling it these days. Right. Yeah, we have the same thing at our office. I always find that it's a, we have a couple like smaller conference rooms that you can go into if you need to take a private call or do something quietly. But I, there was one day last week in particular where I had to make a conference call and every single like room was filled up with somebody else also on a conference call. And it was like, where do I go now? <laughs> like, there's no, right. there's no space for this. Um, I think so. I went into. And then like, I'm always like, I'm always like, I'll go outside, and then it's like so loud outside, <laughs> and then the the train goes by just then. Yeah, I, I went into our basement. We have like a bicycle room that's in the basement, <laughs> and I, I so I sat okay. I sat on the floor in this in this room full of like people's sweaty clothes and when they rode in and their bicycles and, and did my conference call from there, which, which worked out great. It was really quiet and um, a little cold, a little cold, but how is Tucson today? It's warm. 
it's warm today. It's, um, it's about 10 degrees warmer than it was yesterday, which is weird. That's a big jump, even for us. Um, I mean, it's beautiful. It's, like, supposed to be 79 degrees today, which is amazing, but it's a little warm for early March. Um, sunny, you know, that shouldn't surprise anyone. <laughs> What's Tucson like? I've never been there. If you had what to is, describe Tucson. Um, what's it like? Let's see. Uh, so if you're a nature lover and, and, and you, love the, you love the outdoors and you love the uniqueness that is living in the Sonoran Desert, you can immediately identify that this is the city itself occupies this vast valley floor. So it's ringed with all these mountain ranges, which is really amazing. Um, that's if you're looking at it from its position in, in, in its environment. But if you're in the city itself, I, I, I once had a friend visit. She was a friend that I served in the Peace Corps with. So she's no stranger to developing cities or developing countries. She said to me, I didn't know cities could look like that in the United States. And I think she meant like, <laughs> like, I don't know, like maybe other cities, a lot of cities have buried their utility lines and stuff underground. But like, we look, we look like a developing city in a lot of ways because we have like all these old electrical lines and telephone lines and all these things like up in the air which I guess is not something you see in every other city so it looks kind of old and uh, I don't know developing like a work in progress and and then we have really really wide streets which I think is you know it's not attractive and it's definitely challenging for people who bike and it's definitely one of our biggest obstacles but then we also have these like really amazing historic neighborhoods um, all sprung up around the downtown and the, the train. Um, so it's like, it's so weird here. It's great. I love it. It's like the weirdest, it's one of the weirdest places that I've, I've lived. And you get to sort of choose your own adventure here too. Like sort of the, the reason why we don't have continuous sidewalks or, you know, continuous road widths or anything sort of provides any sort of continuity is that when the city was growing quickly, developers could just bypass city rules by just annexing and purchasing a pad, like a plot of land and building a, a, a suburb and they, they could do whatever they wanted. They could make the roads as wide as they wanted. They didn't have to build sidewalks if they didn't want to. And then, you know, as the city grew and grew and grew, those city, those suburbs became part of the city. So we just have, you know, you just walk through these different neighborhoods and every one of them feels weird and different because that's how they grew. So it's, it's very strange, but fun. So what brought you to Tucson, Kylie? Well, what, well, can I ask you guys a question first? So uh, Kyle, you're in Boulder and Sarah, where, where are you? I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, that's where Kyle used to live, right? It is indeed. Okay. Yeah. So Kyle and I were friends here in Memphis while he was the bike ped coordinator and part of the project, one of the projects I work on here in Memphis is launching a bike share system in Memphis. And so we kind of connected through bike advocacy and started this podcast. And then Kyle moved on to Boulder, I guess, what, six months ago, Kyle? Yep. And so now we've been satellite podcasting. So it was really cool when we started, we were able to podcast in a local podcast studio um, in an up and coming neighborhood, which was really fun. And that we got to like look at each other. 
during yeah, the podcast. The <laughs> Pretend like you're on NPR. <laughs> yeah, we, we we felt really professional, and now we like sit Indian style in like cars and do podcasts. <laughs> We've come so far. <laughs> oh, the miracle of technology! <laughs> it is. It is a miracle. I like don't know how it works. It's a miracle to me. It is. Yeah. Did, are you guys both from Tennessee, or did you come there from other places? I've lived here eight years. Um, I grew up kind of moving around up north and like outside of Philly and Chicago and Detroit and went away to school and then did some traveling and landed here about eight years ago and fell in love with Memphis and all of its charm. And so I've been here ever since. And Kyle is not from Memphis. I wasn't a native of Memphis, Kylie, but I I was there for 18 years. So, oh wow, you know, a a pretty big chunk. I, I moved there when I was in high school. Um, my dad was in the Navy actually. And so we moved around quite a bit. And so there's a Naval base just outside of Memphis. And we moved there when I was in high school and I just decided just to stay. I was sort of sick of moving around the country. And I've never been to Memphis. I've never been to Tennessee, but describe it really quickly. Like, I guess for people who haven't been there, what's it like? I would say that it's a, your description of Tucson was sort of reminding me of Memphis actually. Um, both in terms of like, you know, the physical environment where, you know, overhead utilities still rule, um, you know, it's flat, uh, but it's a very green place. So lots and lots of tree cover, um, all throughout the city. Um, if you ever go up into like any of the high rises and you look out over the city, basically what you just see is sort of a green canopy with, you know, the occasional buildings sort of popping out of it. So it's got, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, sits on the Mississippi river. It's got sort of surrounded by farmland. Uh, it developed in a very similar way to what you described in Tucson. You know, the fact that it was a pretty dense, you know, highly populous, very economically well off city, that began to sort of lose population as economies began to change in the 60s and 70s and, you know, sort of chased populations through annexations and, you know, sort of expanded into this behemoth city. It's like 350 square miles um, with only like 650,000 people in it. And so it's, uh, you know, a really sort of dense urban core and then sort of immediately shoots to this very low dense, very sprawling area. And it still contains a lot of like farmland in the city limits. There's some sections in Memphis where you can, you know, you can be almost like an isolated human being in the middle of a wilderness, but you're actually physically in the city of Memphis. And so if you built a house there, they would would run sewer to you, I would assume. Oh my gosh, that's gotta be so expensive. (laughs) Yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an awesome place to be though, um, for oh, yeah. a variety of reasons. The people and the culture sort of, you know, sort of make the city more than just what its physical environment actually is. And Boulder, we all know Boulder's story. Whatever, I'm not just kidding. Yeah, Boulder's, <laughs> Boulder's <laughs> just weird. <laughs> what? So to sort of come back to Sarah's question, what brought sure. what brought you to Tucson? Well, the immediate answer is graduate school in 2006. Um, I'm sort of from Arizona, lived a little bit in um, the Midwest for a time, but mostly have grown up in Arizona. And I I grew up in in Flagstaff in Northern Arizona. But my dad and mom, when they split in the early 80s, my dad sort of pursued his career through Phoenix and then eventually Tucson. So, So my dad had been living in Tucson since 1989 and I'd been coming and visiting him a lot. So it wasn't unfamiliar to me. Um, but I moved down here myself in 2006 to go to graduate school. 
And your dad was one of the city's first bicycle program managers there in Tucson? He was. He was, um, in 1989, he came down here for a job that was created for a bicycle and pedestrian program coordinator. And it was at a time when they weren't, cities weren't creating a lot of those. I think mm-hmm. Mia Burke started about that same time in Portland and they knew each other because there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a robust network of those kinds of people then. So yeah, he came here to do that job and worked as the bicycle and pedestrian program coordinator in Tucson for over 10 years. Wow. Did, did that have any influence on you in, in terms of, you know, sort of the professional or career path that you took yourself? It didn't until I got here. Um, you know, I always thought it was cool that my dad was doing something that was a little out of mainstream. I was like, oh, yeah, my dad, he helps people ride bikes in a city. That's weird and cool. Um, you know, and he, we would always bike ride when we came to visit him, and he would show us his cool projects that he was working on. He was really interested in working with public artists, and that was fun because we'd ride bikes to see the latest um, concepts and the latest installations going in for bus shelters and bike parking. Um, but I didn't choose planning or architecture or landscape architecture or public administration or, or anything like that as my career. I studied, I liked traveling. So I, I studied Spanish as an undergrad. I traveled a lot. I did the Peace Corps. I came here to pursue a master's degree in Latin American studies and then also, and then ended up with a master's in education, um, taught high school for a while. Um, but it was interesting. I was, I was just telling this story this morning to some reporters here at the local paper. I graduated with a master's in education in 2009 and literally no school districts in Tucson were hiring. But at the time in 2009, there were, there were no jobs. So I, I took a school district that was hiring, which is about 25 miles southeast of the city center. And um, at the same time, there was a listing for a, an outreach and education coordinator at our local community bike shop, Bike. And it's funny because when I first started biking to the university campus, I was using like the main arterials that you would use to drive. And it was awful. And I was like, what is going on? This place is terrible for biking. And I had to call my dad and tell him like, what am I doing wrong? And he said, oh, you got to use, you got to use the residential low stress routes. Like here's where you should ride. And I was like, man, if this this isn't even apparent to me, the daughter of the bicycle program, you know, bicycle program coordinator, this, this is obvious. This is not obvious to most people who are moving here to Tucson. Circling back to Bikes, I finally got on the right the right routes to take to get to the university, and then I decided I needed to learn some bike maintenance skills. So I got introduced to Bikes that way. 2009, they were hiring. I got the job. So I was working full full time as a teacher, commuting really far to go to school to teach out there, and then on the weekends and on the evenings, I was doing bike maintenance classes, build a bike classes, and then doing education and outreach in the community on behalf of Bikes. And so that really launched my interest in in um, bicycle advocacy, I guess I would say, because at that same time we had a a different bicycle program coordinator in town named Tom Thivner who was pursuing a bicycle boulevard master plan for Tucson, and he was he, he was um, coming up against some opposition from within the biking community on the bicycle advisory committee, and he asked me to join, and I did, and um, 
the rest is sort of history. Then you know, shortly, shortly after that, we had conversations with a whole bunch of different people in, in town to, to launch Living Streets Alliance, which is the advocacy and nonprofit organization I helped found and work for now. So what does Living Streets Alliance do? Living Streets Alliance advocates for streets as public space, streets that support bicycling, walking, public transit, playing, socializing, and improved quality of life for all Tucsonans across the region. We have a number of initiatives and programs that we run to that end. We have a Safe Routes to School program. Um, We have the Open Streets program at Living Streets Alliance, Cyclovia Tucson. We have a couple different pedestrian safety and comfort campaigns. We are working really hard to pursue a a, um, a source of funding that's dedicated to biking and walking improvements. We haven't reached that yet, but that's what we work on a lot. We work really closely with the city on bike share. Um, oh gosh, you name it, we're working on it. We have a lot of different projects. We also did, oh, we also launched Love to Ride this year. So we have a, a Bike More Challenge that we house at LSA. And we also do a, a bike fest, so an, a monthly you know bike celebration. I think every other city in the country does it in May, but we do ours in April because it's a little hot in May. I wonder, do, do you think that your background in education, in teaching, and, and in sort of you know helping sort of communicate new information to people and helping people learn – does that have any influence in how you think you approach bike advocacy? And, and, and is that different than what you might see in some other organizations around the country? I think it absolutely is different and influences how I see this work. I I don't know if this is normal in, in, in bike advocacy, but I feel like I suffer from imposter syndrome daily, if not hourly, because I'm not a planner. I'm not an architect. I'm not a landscape architect. Like I mentioned earlier, I come at this from a, from an education perspective and I, and I, I rely on my own experience as a person that wanted to bike for transportation in Tucson, but didn't know how to do it. And then found all these different resources and figured it out. And I, I, I would go around for the, at the beginning and do a lot of presentations and tell people genuinely, like, if I can figure it out, literally anybody else can do this. But I don't, I don't think I, I don't think a lot of people believe me, but that's a, that's a different story. But yeah, I absolutely came at this from, um, from an education and empowerment or co-powerment standpoint, which is that like, um, there's, there's knowledge and resources to support people out, out there and, and, and decisions to, to bike more, and um, it's just a matter of, of finding those resources and figuring out how to how to tap into them. Um, but I also think that uh, I don't want to lose my train of thought too much. But I, I think that um, traditional, like traditional planning and advising, like the traditional structure is that like you, you know you've got these advisory committees telling government or advising government on how, what decisions they should make and how they should, um, build the city and what kinds of way, how they should accommodate the people in that city. And 
I think that 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 relationship has relied for a long time on um, traditional. Uh, how would I describe them? Like the like the sort of traditional sources of influence in the community. I mean, I don't know. This is probably the same in a lot of other cities, but like the advisory committees. So for like planning and land use and bicycle advisory committees and the neighborhood committees even are almost always made up of the same people. And about the time that I started joining the bicycle advisory committee, I think there was a conversation happening, not just in Tucson, but in a lot of other cities, like how do we diversify these groups? How do we get more perspectives involved and informing government? Um, and that's, I think that's helped guide my work a lot because I, I just want to see, I want to see more women in these advising capacities. I want to see more people from the non-traditional voices in these advising capacities. Um, I want to see government responding to needs of average citizens. And I don't think that we have those systems in place here in Tucson. In a perfect world, do you have an idea of like what those systems or tools would look at look like? Because that's a conversation we have a lot is kind of the usual suspects are at the table. And Always. how do we encourage the new usual suspects? I and mean, I don't even think the usual suspects is the right term, but it's what people know and recognize. So do you have kind of thoughts on what that system should look like, whether it's Tucson focused or macro? It's, it's something we've been talking a lot about at LSA because we actually just submitted a big grant proposal to a, a local health foundation that's statewide proposing a different, a different public input process. And, and I think that um, as much as the public input process needs to diversify and, and incorporate more voices, I think also the, um, the structure itself needs to change. And you know, we, we, we talk about this a lot, like government shouldn't rely on open houses or meetings or um, mailing postcards to people's homes and then having people return those postcards if they want to provide input, because that's been what we've done for a long time. And I, and I think most everybody, including employees in the city of Tucson, agree that it's not the most effective way to get input on their projects. And they're looking for other ways to do it, but they don't really know how to do it. And we don't either. So we're, we're, we're watching what other people are doing throughout the country. We're talking about different ideas. I think we really like this concept of um, using block parties and, and open streets events as opportunities to engage people in conversations about their visions and hopes for their neighborhoods and their streets. So we're going to be trying a lot of that in the coming year, especially if we get this grant from this health foundation. We'll be doing a lot of that next year. We'll be having a series of block parties in predominantly low-income communities of color where we're going to be doing some street improvements like painting crosswalks and painting murals in the street, doing demonstration projects while simultaneously having conversations with the residents in that area about what these demonstration projects can look like. Um, and hopefully over time channeling the results of those conversations into a more mainstream um, input process that, that planners and city government can tap into and can understand. 
I was just I was just going to sort of lead us in that direction in the conversation. So I'm glad you brought it up ahead of my question. Um, but I know that you are the coordinator for Ciclavia Tucson, and I was when I started working at People for Bikes, we did a we did a little scan of bike advocacy groups across the country that were holding like bicycle events, you know, things like open streets and cyclic vias or bike to work days or, you know, fun bike rides that they do at seasonal times of the year. And we, we did this little scan to sort of see whether or not communities were doing more with those events than just having fun. Like, are they, you know, are they also programming them in ways that, benefit the community some way, you know, whether that's through an input process or, you know, is there some other sort of motivation for holding these events besides just riding to get, you know, pumpkin pie in November? Um, And it sounds like you're sort of thinking about that in a a bigger way. So my my original question was, you know, does Ciclavia Tucson sort of serve a bigger purpose than just having a great celebration out in the streets? You know, can you can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. I'll try to, let's see, I'll try to count off the different things we hope to accomplish with Sokovia. Um, we look a lot at what other communities are doing with their open streets, and we have some of our greatest hits that we go to over and over again. One of them is L.A., even though there's just no way we could ever get those kinds of numbers that they get in L.A. But um, you know, we all took a trip out there to check out how Ciclavia holds their event and we're inspired by a lot of the things that they that they do. We liked the way that they featured um, civic and community groups by empowering them to host major intersections. And we definitely do that at ours. So so we get uh, local groups with messages or not just, you know, if uh, if there's um, if our route's going by, let's say, a, a major employer employer we encourage their employees to come down and adopt the intersection nearest to their to their building and then that way they can be visible and build camaraderie and participate in the event that way that's that's fun but uh but one of the things that we noticed a lot of other communities do is that they they close close down big major uh thoroughfares like you know la is famous for doing that they'll close down wilshire boulevard and we kicked around that idea for a while, and we just the scale of our roads and the scale of the businesses and the sh- and the strip malls alongside our arterials, just we we just decided that wouldn't be fun at all. It just wouldn't it wouldn't feel good. So what we focused on instead is is using Cyclovia as a didactic tool to show people routes that they can take that are low stress every other day of the year when it's not Cyclovia. And we try to really intentionally message on that and say, you know, this is the route and it connects people from here to here with all these stops in between. And it's on a low stress bikeway that's slated for improvement or has recently gotten these improvements. And um, we hope that we, you know, we're not able to tell 30,000, the 30,000 people or so that come to the, the event that specific information, but we hope by just showing them that it's um, that this is something that they can use to cross busy streets or get wherever they want to go, um, that they'll do that every other day of the year. They'll remember that experience and they'll use that route because that's really how I think a lot of people in Tucson, and maybe this is true for other cities too, but a lot of us figure out um, ways to get around the city without using the arterials because the arterials are really intimidating and scary and 
And I, I try to tell people in my work all the time, if you're thinking about riding your bike, don't, don't use the routes that you would drive. Think about other ways to get there. And Cyclovia does that. So that's one thing we do. Um, and then the other thing that we do is we really try to um, demonstrate improvements that are coming to an area. So, for example, um, this April 2nd event that um, we're really sad you guys won't be able to make it to, but um, it's okay. We'll take lots of pictures. We're going to we, – we actually borrowed this idea from Minneapolis. They're brilliant. You know, they, they um, have this collapsible set of planter boxes that they set up, and they do a demonstration protected bike lane. We're going to be doing that on Church Avenue, which is one of the iconic streets in the heart of downtown Tucson. It goes right past our, our really beautiful um, historic courthouse with a mosaic tiled dome. And we put all kinds of native succulents and cactus in these planters, and it's really beautiful. And what we haven't done in the past is actually cold people as they're riding through that protected bike lane about their experience or what they think about that that demonstration site. So we hope to do that this time around. What type of questions will you ask on the poll? That's a good question. That's the, the city of Tucson is going to be taking that on. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think what we have asked people about is, um, you know, would a protected bike lane on certain streets make you more likely to ride on those streets? Um, how favorably or not favorably do you feel about these kinds of improvements? Um, what are some candidates, some candidate streets that you would like to see a protected bike lane on? Questions like that. What do you think the biggest barrier is to really blowing up Tucson's bicycling population? I think the barrier is that the biggest barrier is that um, people largely view it as, unsa- as, an, as an unsafe option. Um, again, going back to that to that concept of like not using the same route to bike that you would, that you drive on daily. Um, it's a double-edged sword, right? And this is a conversation that we have ad nauseum here in Tucson. We have these uh, sort of old school vehicular cyclists who maintain that cyclists have every right to the road, and they do. And that if, by, by encouraging people to get off of the main roads, we're thereby making cycling invisible. And that's damaging to cycling as, as, as an option that the more drivers see cyclists using the main arterials, the more, the safer we all are and the more likely people are to consider that as a viable option. Um, I think the first part of that is true. I think the second part of that is not true. I think it does more damage actually in Tucson to see people using main arterials on bikes, because I think people look at them and say, I'm never going to do that. That's crazy. And then the other side of that is that then when you're encouraging people to use the bicycle boulevards or the other low stress residential options, they're not seeing bikes and they don't think anybody's doing it. Um, I think that's our biggest barrier. So how do, how do you simultaneously raise the visibility of cycling as a safe, comfortable alternative for anyone um, while simultaneously advocating for the kinds of options and infrastructure that make people feel safe? Do you think there's a perfect mix of, of those kinds of activities, right? Sort of raising the awareness, the visibility, you know, if I could, if I could blanket that sort of in the, you know, education slash encouragement area. I mean, I think, I think Cyclovia's and open streets events are that perfect mix. Um, 
I'm remembering about a year ago, we had a new member on the Bicycle Advisory Committee, and it's a region-wide Bicycle Advisory Committee, which isn't all that common, I guess. It's both the city and our county. Um, And this person, she's female, which is notable because we don't have that many females on our Bicycle Advisory Committee. Um, She's also married to a professional cyclist, and we have a lot of professional racing cyclists that come to Tucson to race in the off season to train. Um, and we're known for that. And I think that's also a barrier in Tucson because we have a lot of spandex folks that are super ultra fit and people see that and think that's, that's not for me. Um, but this, but this particular member of the bicycle advisory committee questioned in a subcommittee, how do we break down the barriers of the us versus them mentality between drivers and bicyclists? And I think that open streets events do that because without even trying that hard, you get, you provide such a fun, engaging opportunity for people to, to leave their car behind for a day that it literally puts them into the other's shoes or on it puts, it gives people the opportunity to view the road from a different perspective. And I think I think that's I think that's really powerful. I think that's why cities do open streets events. I think that's why they're successful. Um, we haven't had the experience yet with bike share. Um, that's coming, and I think that that will be a really great opportunity for us too. I think that that's gonna I think that's gonna allow a lot more people who are hesitant to try biking because they don't have the right kind of city bike or access to a bicycle. I think this is gonna break down those excuses. So that'll be fun to see. Who's launching your bike share program? Uh, not well. We're not. We're not allowed to say yet. It's. It's. Uh, I guess. Not oh, public. I understand that, but I mean, like, is it a city-run project or a nonprofit? Oh, got it. it. It's run by the city. And do you see opportunities for kind of programming and how it can be connected with some of the work that Living Streets Alliance is doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're gonna be we're gonna be working with the operator to um, push forward an equity agenda and make sure that people in different parts of the city um, can use the system. So not, not letting, um, you know, credit card ownership or whatever be a barrier and hopefully finding some creative ways to make sure that everybody can use the system. We're, I think LSA is going to be working on that. that when you look at Tucson, kind of how are you defining equity for Tucson? Like, what does an equitable Tucson look like? Uh, gosh, when it comes to bicycling advocacy, um, so what does it look like? So we are tackling this right now, and there are, like, no easy answers to this question. There are <laughs> not, <so>. no. <laughs> It's so hard. Um, I mean, we have like we have we have such a, a great opportunity here. I think to to broaden the equity conversation. Um, earlier this morning, I was I had a an interview with two female journalists at our Arizona Daily Star newspaper who are Tucson natives. They're women of color. They're Latinas. And um, they're interested in bicycling, and they're 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 writing a series of articles for the paper that they're calling "Ride with Us," and it's addressing why more women and women of color don't ride bikes in Tucson, and they're trying to understand the barriers. 
and I, and I think that, um, we have such a resource in Tucson in terms of women of color, people of color, um, we have a large immigrant and refugee population. And I think that looking at the question of why, what are the, the specific barriers to bicycling from the eyes of these different groups of people is, it's something we're working on and it's something that's very exciting to us. Um, I think the frustrations come with trying to figure out how to push forward an agenda for change without looking like Living Streets Alliance is driving that agenda. Does that make sense? I mean, that's the thing that we're most hesitant about is like, how do we, how do we build an authentic, engaging process that's driven by the people we, we, we want to see empowered or co-powered to lead the change? And even having conversations about like, what's possible, what, what kind of infrastructure is possible, where can the funding come from? Um, I think Living Streets Alliance needs to recognize our, our role as, as leaders and, and our ability to answer those questions and get, get that information to people and not be shy about that. I think that's the part that we're struggling with. It's like, we don't, we don't want to be seen as the authority. Um, and yet we have a lot of knowledge. We, need to share it. Yeah, that's really difficult. That's something we're struggling as well in Memphis. And I think especially when we look at planning our bike share system, making sure that, you know, we're not the drivers and we're not, you know, our idea of a neighborhood having ownership of a the station or the system is not kind of blinded by, you know, our missional goals towards equity. There's a group here in Memphis that I think is doing something really interesting where they're basically kind of like handing a neighborhood that doesn't have a strong kind of community leadership or neighborhood association um, that will eventually kind of be a neighborhood that will struggle with gentrification. And they're kind of giving this neighborhood all of the toolkits with the understanding that they may at some point be an adversary. They may at some point not agree with what this organization is wanting to do with the neighborhood. I think that's kind of an interesting way to go about it is they're really conscious of like not being the authority, but they also understand that they may create this like really awesome neighborhood association that doesn't agree with exactly what they want to do in the neighborhood. And I'm excited for that to become like more public and see how that kind of process looks. Yeah. These are, these are very similar issues and, and, and challenges. Um, we're about to launch, you know, as part of big jump, um, a series of, of improvements in our big jump focus area, which is also our, you know, majority minority, super low income parts of town that have been underinvested in for decades. And we're really nervous about that because if we don't, we all feel the weight of the next steps, which are if we don't get the support of the neighbors and the residents that live there on every step of the planning and the implementation process of this infrastructure, um, it could, it could determine the attitude towards these kinds of improvements, and I use improvements with quotes, right? Not everybody sees them as improvements, but it, it could it could determine the attitude towards this this kind of stuff for de- for generations to come. So, um, we're finding that working with young people, like these young Latinas, is really helpful. Yeah, like, like I'm convinced, young Latinas are like the wave of Tucson's future. 
like they want to bike, they want to be empowered, they want to get involved in, in advocacy and advising capacity, like positions. And the more we can push them to the front and get them there, like that's, that's where we're seeing our role right now is like clearing the space, getting our foot in the door, kicking that door open, and then putting as many Latinas in there as we can. <laughs> Not to simplify it that much to like one gender or one, you know, ethnic group or racial group, but like that's, that's what, that's where we're finding a lot of, a lot of, um, collaboration right now. If you had to give some advice to, uh, a bike advocacy organization that was just starting up or has some new leadership, you know, do you have any sort of sage wisdom for, uh, some newbies in the bike advocacy world? I feel like the more we do this, the less I know about anything. <laughs> right? I mean, do you guys feel that way? Uh, um, I mean, I think what we're learning is that it's so important to listen to people. It's like, it sounds, it sounds simple. It sounds cliche, but you know, we're, we're learning from other communities that, um, have been struggling with with with, with equity driven agendas is that it can sometimes take months before you or you might not ever even talk about transportation with some of these communities you 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 might spend a long time talking about every issue important to these communities and never get around to transportation i think the trick for advocacy organizations or not the trick but like the the goal is to just be really careful observers and really good listeners and figure out where transportation is actually weaving into what people are saying. I mean, we're hearing, we're hearing from our partners at the community food bank and we're hearing from our partners in the educational system that people are struggling to get where they need to go on time and that they're spending a lot of time and energy troubleshooting the logistics of their day and to us, that's like, well, yeah, because our transportation system is really hard to navigate. And how do we, how do we get this thing that we're hearing over and over and over again? How do we package it in a way that um, is can be effective in the halls of power? That's great. You could write a book. So, final question: what What's got you really excited, Kylie? What's What do you wake up every day really energized to work on to do? You know, sort of what's what's your next big project on the horizon? Uh, you know, just what, what's bringing you joy right now? I'm excited to see what we're going to be able to accomplish bringing our Open Streets project to a, a completely new part of town. Um, there's a business corridor in deep south Tucson, south 12th Avenue. It's known for having some of the best Sonoran-style Mexican food in tucson and kyle when you guys come visit we've got plans to take you there um it's 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 amazing and it's called the little the little sister to downtown tucson it's got such potential uh and we're doing a lot of work with the with a business coalition there that's very strong but also with a number of neighborhoods there and it's sort of at the epicenter of of the convergence of all these different resources that were that we're bringing to the table 
And I'm really excited to see, we, we have no idea. I mean, I'm having a hard time describing this because we, as LSA, we really have no idea what's going to shake out over the next couple of years, but we know that there's going to be some really exciting things coming out of it because we've got these resources from the big jump. Um, we're working with the university of Arizona on a, a green infrastructure plan for one of the bike boulevards in that area called the Liberty bicycle boulevard. That's really exciting. Um, we've got potentially this health grant from the foundation and out of Phoenix to do a lot of these demonstration projects and block parties there. Um, I think we're all really excited about the opportunity to work in this part of town because it's just been ignored for so long. And, and on a gut level, that sort of history of injustice makes us all mad and motivates us to work that much harder. But it's also um, really exciting to see how we can, I guess, how we can shift the sort of the, the nexus of power to focus more towards communities that have been ignored for so long. I think there's a lot of people who are, you know, roughly the same age, we'll call them millennials, dip into the Generation X a little bit, that's where I'm located. Um, and seeing what's happening on a national level politically, I think is, um, is bringing us all a lot of opportunity to make a lot of noise and a lot of positive change. And I think that's what is making us all really excited right now. That is really exciting. I'm excited now. <laughs> come to Tucson. I'm going to get my eye on you and hopefully come to Tucson because now I want to come. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited, uh, Kylie, that we're going to get to get work together during the big jump process. And I'm looking forward to our visit in a few weeks. Uh, I've also never been to Tucson, so I'm really super stoked to see um, you know, the whole city and ride some bikes and eat some good food. Ride some bikes, eat some good food. Um, we're really excited. I mean, this has been such a joy for us as Living Streets Alliance to be able to go to these national level conferences and connect with all of you different professionals working on this because that's, I mean, none of these ideas that we have are original. They're all coming from someplace else. And I think that's what's really exciting about this bike advocacy movement right now is that we're all doing such a good job of keeping each other informed on, on what's working, what's not working, what's changing. It's, it's really fun. Yeah. And now you're on the bike nerds podcast. Uh, you're, you're, you're about to get inundated, uh, with email requests and Twitter, uh, questions. I think, I think your popularity is just about to blow up. Oh, geez. We have, we have that impact. Uh, I've heard, I've heard, I don't know. So we've been told. (laughs) Uh, thanks so cool. much. Thanks so much for taking in, uh, you know, time out of your, out of your lunch, uh, today to talk with us. Um, super excited again, you know, just to sort of have you on and, uh, and to sort of hear more about what, ha- what's happening in Tucson in the future. Well, thank you both very much for spending time with me, in my car. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your day. Likewise. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.